This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hi, my name is Jennifer Gould. I'm with Rand's Office of External Affairs. Um, and I want to thank you for joining us this evening for this program. Uh, I'd also like to welcome uh, Suzanne Nora Johnson is here. Uh, Suzanne is the former vice chairman of the Goldman Sachs Group. She is the former chairman of the Global Markets Institute at Goldman Sachs, and uh, she is also a very valued member of the Rand Health Board of Advisors, and we're just delighted that she's agreed to be here tonight to introduce our speakers. Uh, thank you. Suzanne. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. Um, as a member of the RAND Health Board of Advisors, I just want to welcome you to this evening's program. Um, I'm sure that many of you recognize that RAND is a very special asset uh, in our community. Um, there are very few institutions today globally that are really nonpartisan, independent, and really focused on purely social change uh, for the good of the whole. And that really this is this organization. Um, Rand Health uh, has a number of researchers that have focused on areas that are very, very difficult, of which we're going to talk about one tonight. And the subject of looking at the impact of media on children is something that many people from many disciplines have studied, but trying to get to a right answer uh, is increasingly difficult. So we've got two people tonight who I think will offer you some very unique perspectives based on their research. But just to highlight for you, Becky Collins uh, is a senior behavioral scientist scientist at RAND, and she directs the Health Promotion and Disease Prevention Program here. Um, she's recently helped lead a very important study that looked at uh, the association between um, media use uh, and adolescent sexual behavior and pregnancy rates. And she was also a key investigator in a study looking at alcohol advertising and underage uh, drinking. She also serves on the American Psychology Association's Task Force on the Sexualization of Girls. I think if you look through her dossier of research, I think you'll get a very good feel for what she feels strongly about and where she's directed her efforts. Uh, just to give you a couple of her titles of her research reports, one has been exposure to sex on TV uh, may increase the chance of teen pregnancy, uh, and another early adolescent exposure to alcohol advertising and its relationship to underage drinking. And again, uh, those are things that are probably good for the people in the room to read. And uh, if you actually have teenagers, they're actually not a bad thing for them to read uh, as well. Um, Madeline Donono, who also is joining us tonight, is the executive director of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, uh, which is a project of community partners, which is a very well-respected not-for-profit uh, institute. It's a resource for the entertainment industry in particular, uh, really focused on the next generation of content creators, trying to get them influenced as to what the most relevant issues are uh, to focus uh, the audience on, particularly the role of females uh, in media, but also just kind of sexual stereotypes generally. Um, they really have aimed most of their efforts at programs for children age 11 and under. Uh, uh, and Madeline has over 25 years of experience uh, in the media industry. So I hope you'll enjoy this uh, tonight. Uh, please, uh, again, I hope you'll join us for other RAND programs. And with that, I'll turn it over to Becky. Thanks. So thank you, Suzanne. And thanks to everybody for being here. It's packed room, so that's nice to see. Yeah, you talk about sex and you talk about media and suddenly everybody's interested. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I came to my interest in media indirectly through um, my real interest in adolescent health. Um, I've been looking and at and studying adolescent health and different aspects of it from substance use to sex for more than 15 years and was starting to get frustrated at um, the very small headway that we've been making on those issues with kids and thinking about whether there were things that we could do that would have a big impact on a large group of children rather than um, the other kinds of interventions that we do that are um, effective but that require one-on-one -on -one interaction or getting involved in the classrooms and so sometimes have obstacles to overcome. And in thinking about what involves a lot of kids and a lot of their time, the most obvious thing, thing, thing that came to mind was television. So that's where, how I got to where I am. And um, as Suzanne mentioned, the main study that I think I'm known for is one in which we followed kids for three years, a group of about 2,000 kids, three years' time, um, tracking what they were watching on television and also tracking their sexual behaviors. And then when we went back and looked at the data and did analyses, we found that there was a strong association between what kids were watching on television early in their lives and particularly the sexual content in that TV and what age they first had sex and among kids who were having sex, whether they were likely to get pregnant or likely, in the case of boys, to, to get a girl pregnant. So that's me, and that's what I do. Um, and I guess I'd like to ask Madeline to tell us a little bit about what exactly she does and how she got to it. Well, how I got to it is a little bit different. Um, I didn't grow up being an activist per se, but I spent most of my life um, being very passionate about a lot of different areas. And I was very fortunate to have achieved uh, a great level of success in the entertainment industry. And I just got to that point in life where I felt I needed something more. And I was very, very lucky uh, that Gina Davis was looking for someone to run her institute, and she found me. And it was one of those blessed moments where you just recognize that it was meant to be. Uh, I've always been passionate about children's programming. I've always been an advocate you know, for women's issues. So personally, I had had a certain track that was very organic to what I'm doing now, but not professionally. Um, the reason that the Gina started the Institute also happened organically. She, she was watching children's programming with her daughter, who at the time was two, and she thought it was odd that she didn't see a lot of girls in the programming. So she'd say to her friends, hey, you know, do you ever count the amount of female characters in G-rated movies or TV shows? Or do you notice there's just not a lot of girls? And they're like, no, you're wrong. There's Belle, there's Dorsa, there's just that. No, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And Gina is incredibly intelligent, as you probably know. And she thought, you know, I need data to prove my point. And she raised money and funded one of the largest studies ever done on film and television. And the focus of that study was really to examine female portrayals and gender stereotypes. Um, and as a result of that, she was able to prove her point. And one of the most startling pieces of data that we found is that male characters outnumber female characters three to one across all film, all ratings, and all television shows. And additionally, in terms of background scenes or secondary characters, it's five to one. And this is a fact that hasn't changed since 1946. 
So even though in the media, you know, God bless Catherine Bigelow and, you know, we're thrilled about Mamma Mia and, you know, a number of other shows, <laughs> but it doesn't, it hasn't fixed it. So we're here to fix things. I love that you ended on we're here to fix things because um, <laughs> I think that's the key um, point here is that you've done this research, Gina's paid for this research that shows the representation of girls and that it's lacking and I think you can also fill us in on the kinds of representations that are that are there and um, whether they're good or bad for kids, what you think about that. And I've done research that looks at the association between media exposure and um, kids' sexual activities, but the real point of doing all of this work is to try to find a way to change kids' lives and to make sure that they grow into the healthiest, most well-adjusted people that they can be. So I guess that's what I'd like to ask you about next, Madeline, is what is it that um, you're doing with these data and how are you trying to make a difference with it? Well, the the goal is when you think about it, and actually it was in the uh, brochure, you know, our friends at Kaiser talked about kids engaging with some type of screen upwards of six hours a day. And if you look at all types of media devices beyond a television set, it could be 10 hours a day. So when you think about that and you think about you know, our children spending so much time consuming media, we know media is a really powerful force in shaping attitudes and beliefs and perceptions. Just to give you a, a crazy example, not so crazy, when Gina was playing the President of the United States and Commander-in-Chief, they did a research study, and it showed that as a result of people being able to see a female president 68% of the adults said, okay, I would consider voting for a female candidate. And then on the heels of that, a few years later, you had you know, Hillary Clinton, and, and so it goes. So the notion of if you can see it, you can be it. And if you see something on television or in film or you know, on the Internet, um, there's a deep sense of, of influence. So if you back down and think about children and Becky can answer this better than I, but there's a certain age where children can distinguish between fantasy and reality, and below eight, they can't. So when you think about kids watching and consuming so much media, and if the media that they're seeing doesn't show female characters at all, what message does it say, send to your sons? And if it only shows boys as being aggressive or violent, what message does that send to girls? And if girls and boys don't see each other just occupying the sandbox, and we know women are over 50% of the population, I know the new census data hasn't come out yet, what does it say about the value of boys and girls' stories? And then another fact, when you think about over 83% of all the media that's consumed overseas is produced in the United States, you know, we are a mirror for the world. Well, I love what you're saying because I think that's the key to the whole thing is that it's not, I think very oftentimes the discussion gets down to the level of television is bad for kids, media are bad for kids, we should limit it, we should make sure they don't spend a lot of time with it, um, and if they only did something else, they would turn out okay. And I think that that's not the way to think about it. I like to think of television and other media as an alternative reality for kids, another world that they inhabit during a large part of their day. As Madeline said, it's almost 11 hours now that kids spend with media each day. 
That's more than they're spending with their parents. That's more than they're spending with their friends. It's more than they're spending sleeping. They're spending time immersed in these other worlds. And so it's reasonable to expect that they'd be influenced by it, and they could be influenced positively, and that's where I see a lot of opportunity. The idea that if that presents a world full of things that they could become, that we want them to become, they'll be very different individuals in the long term than if it's a world that portrays things that we may all think of as very entertaining. There's a reason why media has a lot of sex in it. Um, People like to watch. They get interested, and it's easy to make comedy out of sexual situations. Um, If you're looking for sexual content in television programs, the first place you want to look is in sitcoms. It's not in the dramas. It's there. But it's even more so in the everyday jokes and innuendo. And that kind of message, I think, filters through to kids. We know that at the time that we did our study, the amount of sex kids saw on TV was um, it was in two-thirds of programs, and there was something about sex, some mention, every 10 minutes in shows that had sexual content. So that's a lot of mentions or references to sex. Well, the last time that Kaiser Family Foundation went back and did that count again, the amount had actually doubled from the time that we did our first study. So kids are really getting exposed to a lot of this, and it's telling them what's important in life. And unfortunately, not only is it sort of saying, sex is something you should think about a lot of the time, and we all do all the time, is kind of the message they get, but it also doesn't present very many portrayals of responsible behavior or what the consequences might be. And so I think you know, the, the critical thing is to try to get more alternative messages out there and more healthy messages out there because it's possible to use media, I think, as a very strong agent for good and not to just be thinking about using this research as a basis for censorship or regulation. Um, One of the things that I found fascinating about your research and also dovetails with us is if you think about um, negative imagery and negative stereotypes, and seeing a lot of sex on TV, what it seems to be what becomes common becomes the norm. And I think that's a problem. And I don't know if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, I think that's exactly the way kids operate. If you have young children, I have a four-year-old myself, and the, the thing I was most struck by when she was really tiny was that she learns everything she sees. It's kind of this miraculous way that human beings are hardwired to mimic what goes on around them. And as we get older, we get a little bit more self-regulation and we just don't do everything we see other people do. But we still learn from what's around us, and especially adolescents who don't have a lot of judgment and little kids who have almost none. They don't know how to filter. They don't know how to monitor. And so the same thing that allows a kid to see an adult they admire or another kid do something that they want to be able to do and achieve that themselves can also lead kids who see negative messages that are fictional and say, I can do that too, um, because they just think that's the way the world is, and I'll mimic it. Um, So I know your study focused on adolescents and teens, but I was curious to know how young do children become aware of, you know, sexuality? I know for us, um, and we know, you know, preschool television does a really good job, you know, with gender balance and portrayals and gender stereotypes, so I really have to compliment them on that. But there's an age between preschool and perhaps 
that 6 to 11 where something changes, and that's where we believe that media and other imprints um, start to enculturate messages. And I'm just wondering, even though you were focusing on an older audience, where do kids become aware of right, sexuality? So why are we both on the same right. stage when you <laughs> study little kids and I study sex? <laughs> it could be a disjoint. Um, I think the key thing is that messages start to filter in with kids at a very early age, and they don't understand all of them. And the ones they don't understand are not having a negative influence on them. If there's one thing that psychologists have figured out over the years, it's that if you don't understand something, you're not going to learn from it. So by the way, if you're listening to tapes in your sleep, they're probably not affecting you because you're either awake and not getting any sleep or you're not understanding a word that they say. Um, And so the same thing is true for a kid who sees something about sex on TV and has absolutely no idea that it's sexual, whether they're very young or whether they're adolescents. And obviously, the younger you are, typically the less likely you are to understand. But when I get asked this question, I always think of my nephew, who's now old enough that he'd be very embarrassed if he knew I told this story. Um, But when he was about nine years old, one of the big hit songs went, let me see your thong, thong, thong. Let me see your thong, thong, thong. He had no idea that that's what it was. And actually, I think he was old enough, he could have figured it out, but he never thought about it. And he would run around singing the song, and people would be staring at him. I don't think that that song had a negative influence on him. He didn't have this mental picture in his head that we all have. Um, But what it did was sort of set the stage for him to be open to those messages once he starts understanding them and thinking, well, this is no different than what I've been thinking about and hearing about my whole life, so why should I now question what I'm learning um, from the songs that I listen to? And so I think that's really what's going on. And we have to be careful about it, especially because what we know is that the younger kids, that age group that Madeline focuses on, are the ones who consume the most media, not the very little, the six-year-olds, but around age eight to nine, ten, those are the kids who are really paying a lot of attention to media. And if they're not understanding it, they're somewhat protected, but they're starting to understand it at that very age. Well, just to build on what Becky was saying and to kind of bring it back over into what we noticed, um, there's a term that um, Dr. Stacy Smith, who we have done our research with, she's with USC uh, Annenberg School of Communications and Journalism, we call it no room for a womb because what we found is that most uh, G-rated uh, female characters have these unbelievably tiny, tiny weights. Um, <laughs> And just to compare, like we looked at G-rated films, characters versus R-rated films, and what we found is that G-rated female characters wear the same amount of sexually revealing clothing as R-rated live action. So when you think about the youngest children consuming uh, G-rated and you know preschool programming, and these are the types of images, this is how girls are seeing other female characters portrayed. This is how boys are seeing female characters portrayed. Um, And then you think about what happens when they start watching older PG, PG PG-13 and R-rated programming, and it kind of leads back into, you know, Becky's camp. You just think about that's a long diet of that type of um, imagery that's been shaping, you know, their views. 
this makes me think of this um, another story about my daughter this time, um, that the first time she saw a Disney picture of Sleeping Beauty, Aurora. I don't know if there's anybody from Disney here, but she has this kind of drapey neckline. It's a very beautiful gown, but my, sis- my daughter looked at it, and she said, Mommy, why is her dress falling off? <laughs> she thought there was something wrong, and that's probably a sensible reaction that we're going to condition out of her because she'll see it now over and over mm-hmm. and over again um, in these Disney kinds of movies. And I think it's important to keep in mind that you know, it's probably not a problem that Aurora has a drapey dress or a tiny waistline or a problem with any one show or any one movie or any one character. I think, you know, there's a creative process out there and there's room for creativity and for portrayals that aren't healthy. I think the problem arises when you have so many of them in so much of the media that there aren't alternative portrayals for kids to see. Um, And, you know, on the note about the early sexualized images with kids. Um, Some of the work that Suzanne mentioned that I've done on sexualization of girls was based on reviewing that work that Stacey Smith had done. And one thing that we argued in the report that we did was that introducing these images of girls as sexy early on for the little kids is in some ways what can set the stage later for the consumption of sexual media. So in one case, it's just the girl looking sexy. It's not talking about sex. There's no sexual behavior. But once you get used to girls as being sexy and boys as wanting sexy girls, then that's the set, the set, set that you need in place to take the next step to thinking about sex and sexuality. And the other influence that we look at is, well, how are the characters portrayed? We know there's not a lot of them, but the few that are there, how are they portrayed? And one of the themes that we had noticed um, over the course of the 17 years that we've been studying it is that the portrayal for female characters is really romance or royalty. And I think royalty is a tough job to get. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, with that in mind, um, when you think about the objectification, you know, of girls, if the only time a, a boy sees a female character in animation, there's the big eyes you know, that pop out of their head, mm-hmm. but she's kind of just off the side posing. Again, what does it teach boys and men? Because it's not just about girls and women. It's about all of us, you know, together. So one thing um, I want to return to is this issue of how do you make a positive difference in this? Um, and I know that that's part of what you do is to try to influence the creative process. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very interested in getting some of your insights about how easy or difficult that is to do and what techniques seem to work or to not work. Because after all, the media industry is a creative industry and it's a business and their goal is not to try to improve the health of kids. So how do you convince them that they might want to take those things into account? Mm -hmm. Or do you? Well, we do. And what's very interesting is there's no evil conspiracy in the entertainment industry with regard to gender stereotypes and female portrayals. There really isn't. In fact, um, they're shocked, believe it or not. Um, There have been many meetings that we have been in with heads of studios, and by the time we're done presenting our data, they're like this. Um, And so... Um, it's, they're just absolutely shocked. It's not something they think about. 
And I'll tell you a little story um, of something that Gina noticed. So when you think about it, there's the business decision makers, and then there's lots of different groups of creative people that are touching that particular piece of content. How is it written? How is it produced? And how is it executed? And one of the stories that Gina tells, which underscores the point, is when she was on set for Stuart Little, she was watching the second AD put children into these little boats, and they had these devices. So she watched them go down the line, and he kept giving the device to the boys and putting them in the front of the boat. So she said, hey, Lou, or whatever his name was, do you think you could give girls some of the devices? And he looked at me and he goes, yeah. <laughs> and it was as simple as that. Now, was that an evil conspiracy? Was he intentionally not trying to give the girls devices? No, he just didn't think about it. So one of the biggest missions, the reason why we use the data is because it's fact-based information. And when we present that information, it's, you can't dispute it uh, you know, at all. And secondly, just to make them kind of aware um, of all these, this information. The other thing that we looked at is, and what we know is a direct correlation, is when you think about that only 17% of all the writers, producers, and directors are women. Uh, and we know that when there are women directors, there's a direct, almost like a 40% increase in on-screen characters, female characters. So you have to take a look at that. Television's a little bit better. It's in the 23, 25, you know, percent. Um, and, you know, it just in our recent research, only 7% of directors are women, period. Uh, so you have to look at you know that as well as who is you know influencing the content. But the response has been very welcomed, and our approaches have been collaborative. We don't view the entertainment industry as the enemy because we're in the entertainment industry ourselves. You know they're our colleagues, so they've um, really welcomed you know our feedback and. You know, we've talked to each studio, each content creator has a lot of different circumstances. There are some content creators that have legacy of characters and franchises that go back to the 20s. You know, there, there's a lot of different situations. There are content creators that are really forced by, say, consumer products or other business, you know, factors that will shape the kind of content that they have to produce. There, only 17% of all animators are women. And another interesting finding is we had done a presentation to one of the animation guilds, and there was a Q&A, and one of the animators said, um, well, we have to make the female character perfect, otherwise the feminists will, will kill us, will come after us. And Gina said, well, I didn't think we were that organized. <laughs> and, and what he was saying is because there's only one female character, he felt it had to be pretty and smart and perfect, etc. And our point of view is just throw tons of them in there <laughs> and make them green and polka dot and yellow in the background. So, you know, so I think you know from a content creation standpoint, a lot of people think that we are we want every character to be a female lead character. That's not what we're saying. We're saying just reflect the world the way it is. Show us being 50%. Throw us in the background. If there's a group scene in an animated film, why can't you dub in some female voices? Why are they always all male voices? So, I mean, something subtle 
like that can really sensitize an entire generation, not only of content creators, but of our children. So I think it's time now to open this up to audience questions. So am I right, Monica? <laughs> I've been watching you for my cues, and I was like, I, I don't see her. <laughs> I'll find you a little easier. So if you'll raise your hands, I'll come right over to find you. I see one right here in the front. Sir, one quick question. Please stand. Just give the question. <clears throat> your, uh, your number of 7 to 11 hours of TV per day, is that what you're saying? 11 hours, 10 hours and 45 minutes. Now, that's not continuous because some of the hours they're using more than one medium at the same time. Um, so if you take that out, I think you can you can dampen it down by a couple of hours. But that's the total number of hours. And that's work by Kaiser Family Foundation. Unfortunately, it's a program um, that's now been discontinued, so I don't know when we'll next get data like that. But that was a very recent study. Computers, TV, music. They left out, because they weren't sure it was media, they left out talking on cell phones and texting. So if you add those in, then it bumps up to 13 and a half, I believe. We have a question in the back. Sorry. I believe last year that video game receipts outgrossed box office receipts. So are there any similarities and differences with uh, technology-driven media versus the uh, old-school film and television? We don't, from a scientific standpoint, we don't know the answer yet because research is always behind the, the wheel. We have to wait until folks in the federal government say, this is important and here's some money to study it. But I can tell you they're starting to get interested and there are good theoretical reasons to think that video games are really important because instead of being a passive viewer... You're really part of that world, and you have an opportunity to interact. And so, in fact, video games could be a really good learning opportunity, too. Kids can get a chance to make a mistake in a video game and get pregnant and then say, oops, I shouldn't have done that, and their lives haven't been permanently altered. And with regard to us, 83% of all the characters are male, and we won't even begin to get into the gender stereotypes. So um, we... We look forward to working you know, with gaming as well. I have a question to your right. Hello. Um, I was just wondering if you had any knowledge, if it had changed much. I mean, I remember some of the old days, like the Aussie and Harriet kind of things, where there was, it seemed like there were more female characters. And now, like, um, not to be too particular, but like Charlie Sheen is kind of a slut. I mean, <laughs> he had like you know, numerous female accompanists. Um, has it looked at any of that stuff, whether it's increased or decreased over the years? The data that we have, um, and we're just finishing up some new data, will cover the, over the past 20 years. And no, it hasn't gotten better. It hasn't changed, and it wasn't better in the 50s. In terms of the number of women, in terms of the amount of sex, it's way higher now. I don't even think that anybody's trying to calculate the number of times. You kind of have to have the same metric every year. But we can tell you that from 1999 to 2007, it um, more than doubled. So, and we know that there was less from prior studies. Question on the far left. Hi. I wonder if you included in your study how G-rated film and television has gotten 
much sexier than it was 20 years ago because I have an almost nine-year-old and when I watched Lion King the first time and she's batting her eyes during Do You Feel the Love Tonight, she was three and a half at the time and said, Mom, (laughs) she got it at three and a half. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, have you taken any of that into your research? Um, What we've known is females are five times as likely as males to be um, portrayed in sexually revealing clothing, and that hasn't changed in 20 years. So the statistics really haven't changed. They're, they still stay in that same range. It hasn't jumped, but it hasn't decreased either. That the G rated is getting more and more permissive? You don't think it is? No. No. Which is not to say it's not showing these things. It's just that it always has. Yes. I have a question here in the back. Hi. I wonder if you could explain the um, uh, fascination with young people uh, concerning werewolves, vampires, and axe murders <laughs> and, and what effect that has on their developing sexuality. Believe it or not, people have written about this stuff way before the big upsurge we see now in this. Um, a lot of people who have been interested in HIV and AIDS and the whole idea of blood, lust. And we don't have any data on that, so I, I, I can't answer it. But maybe somebody in the audience who's a, a producer could answer this for you afterwards and tell you why they, where they're doing it, because they obviously are on to something. It's popular. We have another question on the left. Um, I was wondering about um, with reality shows I mean I know that for me like the best uh, minority depictions I see are on Dancing with the Stars and stuff and and how with reality shows some different kind of people are getting in and and how much it's positive or negative you know I'm not an expert on that area of research I know it but more peripherally and what I know is that there have always been arguments about um, I think exactly the same issue that Madeline has been raising for women in terms of minority portrayals and the problem is that if you don't have enough of them you can't show a diverse set of them and so um, you know the TV producers get mad every time a study would come out and this has been going on for years and years saying well all of your black characters are criminals and then the next thing happens that they do the Cosby show and it says all of your black characters are you know upper middle class and that's not realistic and they say what are we going to do and I think the answer is what Madeline has been saying which is if you have enough of somebody in there you can do more diverse representative portrayals and not everybody has to be a positive portrayal. Um, You can just show that people are people and some of them are nice people and some are bad and isn't that actually what plot and drama are all about. I have a question here in your back. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering if um, Harry Potter were Harriet Potter, if it would have been as popular. Um, I write for children, and um, I'm faced with this issue of do you write as a, as a male character or female character? And just from my observation, it seems to me, and for kids and adults, that women are able to see themselves in male characters more, and men have a harder time seeing themselves in female characters. So how do you deal with this from a business standpoint? Well, there's a study that um, Gina and I would like to do. We call it the Mythbuster, because one of the things that 
is always said in the industry is that, you know, girls will watch boys, boys won't watch girls. And we know that's not true. Um, we know that from our friends at Nickelodeon that over 50% of the viewership for Dora, they're boys. Now, why would boys like Dora? Because she's interesting. Because she's taking adventures and she's not trying to pursue a career in royalty or just seeking romance. So I think we underestimate um, what would be likability you know, for, for children and particularly for boys. They want to see programming that's you know, interesting. Um, I, I won't say names, but there was a movie um, that tested extremely well with boys and girls. And then when they put the title on it, boys wouldn't go see it. Now, is that because they'd been enculturated not to like girl things? Um, was it because their parents put an imprint? We know from some of our friends that there was a line of consumer products, and there were a lot of boys that wanted this product, but the parents wouldn't buy it for them because of the color. So there's, so there's what are the, what's the children learning from media? What is their guidance, you know, the parental guidance? What kind of imprint? You know, lots of times... You know, parents may say, well, boys need to be boys, but a girl can be a tom girl, or she could be a girly girl, but it's not okay for a boy. So that's where the gender stereotypes really works, you know, both ways. So when you think about, and in publishing, there's fantastic published works, you know, for girls, wonderful. And some of them are being turned into, you know, feature films. You know, the studio has to look at the return on investment, they have to look at the you know, in investment in terms of what kind of box office they're going to generate. And essentially, they want a lot of people to go see it. So I think you have to look at it you know, from, from that way. I mean, a lot of people are talking about Saul, you know, which was originally written as a male character. It was written for Tom Cruise. He turned it down. And Amy Pascal, who's brilliant, who's the head of Sony, thought to approach Angelina Jolie and turned it into you know, a female protagonist. So, I mean, I think I would just add, we have lots of media. Most of the media that we have out there has white characters, and nobody says, oh, but then no minorities will come. They've gotten used for a long time to watching majority white media and identifying with the characters and getting just as involved in it. And so I think exactly what Madeline's saying, they have just as much potential to identify with girls um, for boys, but that there's other things outside of that that's saying, no, you shouldn't um, be interested in what girls do. Question on the left. Following up on your point about the gender identification, as a parent of two daughters and a son, and all of them now in their 20s, during the time that they were growing up, we watched television, my husband and I, with the kids. And regardless of the hour that the TV was on, and we didn't have any problem with watching TV, it was just that it had to be done together. Um, there was always a commentary going on on our part. That isn't the way women are. That is the way guys are. That isn't the way men are. That isn't right or that's wrong. The discussion was always there. My question to you is, when you did your study of, I believe you said 2,000 children over a period of time. Was there a difference in, your, in the influence of the parent? I would only add that all three kids are in graduate school. 
They all have stable relationships. And none of the girls got <laughs> pregnant so far. But, but, um, but the question is, did the parental influence affect the study? Um, you know, in this particular study, we didn't find... Um, and weren't actually able to test exactly what you're asking about, but we did a sub-study of these 2,000 kids. So what we did was there was an episode of Friends that was one of the highest-rated episodes ever. It's one where the character, Rachel, tells the character, Ross, that she's pregnant. And Ross and Rachel were a couple on again, off again, and they'd broken up, but they had sex one time, and she got pregnant. And so in this episode, she tells him... She's pregnant, and he says, what? But we used a condom. And she says, condoms don't always work. Condoms are 97% effective. And she hands him a box of condoms, and he pulls them out, and looks, and he reads the box, and he throws a fit, and then he keeps talking about the fact that they're only 97% effective. Nobody ever told me this. And very shortly after this episode aired, I was meeting with Vicki Ryder ride out from Kaiser Family Foundation and we were talking about it and we said this is an interesting episode because it sends kind of a mixed message it just told 16.7 million teenagers that condoms don't always work is that a good thing or is that a bad thing in terms of whether they will use protection or whether they will have sex and did they get that message what did they take away from it so we'd just recently started our study of 2,000 kids. We pulled out the data. We said, which ones of these kids told us they watch Friends? And we called those kids up. We said, did you see that episode? How effective do you think condoms are? And did you happen to talk about that episode with a parent or an, another adult? What we found was that what you'd expect from this kind of mixed message, half the kids told us they came away thinking condoms don't work. And half the kids came away saying, well, Ross was shocked because condoms usually work. So the, half of them took one message, half took another. But the kids who told us they talked to a parent were twice as likely as the other kids to say, condoms usually work. And so what we think happened was when they talked to parents, parents told them which message they preferred they take away from the, message, from the episode. And I think that that's critical. You know, it's not good to just sit next to your child and watch. Um, a lot of what kids watch on TV is bad stuff because they're with their parents and their parents want to see it. Um, but if you watch with them and you comment on it, I think it really is an opportunity to teach and to talk about things that maybe you don't even know how to bring up on your own. Um, and it's an opportunity. So that's why they're in grad school. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I have a question here to your right. Hi, um, I'm a pediatrician, and I go into the schools and teach fourth, fifth, and sixth graders about early human development. And one of the things that I'm very impressed by is this transition between the characters on television or in the movies and then the celebrity status. And the fact that particularly the girls, because when I do health education, we split them by gender, and I teach the girls, the girls are very put off by the celebrities who have grown up very quickly and are modeling behavior that they don't respect, which I love. My question to you is, does the entertainment industry hear that these girls don't respect the way the celebrities are behaving in their real persona, and is that going to change the way the characters are portrayed on television and in the movies in the future? Because it seems to be 
sort of peaking at the moment? Let me see if I can answer it this way. When content creators hire actors to play a role, they'll make a certain judgment. What kind of family do they come from? What kind of, I mean, they do an evaluation. But a lot of what you're seeing happens after they achieve superstardom. And that's well out of the control of any content creator. And they do try to deal with some of these issues that come up with their families. And there's some specific things that I've heard about where they did step up and have an intervention. And even though the parent of the child actor wasn't doing anything about it, the studio took it upon themselves to get help. Um, so, so it's just out of their control. Um, because when they develop you know, the character uh, and they hire an actor to fill it, then the journey begins. They can't predict that actor A is going to go one way and actor B is going to go another way. I mean, you look at someone like Michael J. Fox, you look at someone like Jodie Foster, there's a ton of celebrities that have grown up as child actors and who are doing phenomenal things you know, with their professional and personal lives. We have a question in the back. Hi there. Hello, Madeline. Hi, I'm Jess. really enjoying the framing of this conversation. I'm an author and self-esteem expert and specialize in tweens and teens. So I have kind of a practical application question to the research. Um, and I appreciate that we're addressing parents and getting involved in teachable moments with media. One of the challenges that I face working in mainstream media and also working as an advocate, kind of one foot in and one foot out, is that when we talk about changing the structure and landscape of more gender balanced programming or challenging some of those stereotypes, we kind of also go up against really swaying viewer attitude from these teenagers, especially those that have been indoctrinated with the stereotypical media and won't choose kind of the healthier option, let's say, right out the gate, which I think sends the message then back to the entertainment industry of, oops, that didn't work, or we took a chance here, so we're going to go back and, and play it safely. So I kind of have a two-part question. One is, how might we continue to engage um, in teaching the entertainment industry that it's going to take more than just one or two or even ten tries at changing some of this? And also, from a practical standpoint, how do we work with the viewing audience? Because we know it's a supply and demand business. And if there are more people you know, going into seeing werewolves and vampires, then we have a whole bunch of werewolves and vampire shows. So how do we also then work on a practical way with your research to get teens and their parents and tweens to choose differently and to use their money differently, which is where we know it really counts? Well, um, and Jess is also the global ambassador for Dove and for their self-esteem. Um, uh, fund that. So she's a fantastic advocate, and she's been an advocate her whole life. So yay, Jess! Um, so one of the reasons why we're focusing on programming and entertainment targeting children 11 and under is because it's such an enormous issue. Uh, we believe that what happens to children who are consuming that programming of those ages will directly impact what happens when they're adolescent you know, and into adulthood. So that's why we're focusing on that target versus trying to wrap arounds around the entire girl-women's you know, issue. So we believe if we can not only sensitize a generation of children and their parents, and those children are going to be the next generation of content creators, that's the way that we can best make that change from a entertainment content standpoint and from a public standpoint. Because by the time they get to, to your point, Jess, adolescent and teen, 
the the influence is only going to be so much. They've they've formed their attitudes, beliefs, there will be experiences and life experiences that change, but essentially the damage is, is done um, from that standpoint. What was the other? Give me the second one again. Right. Well, for example, we were at a studio, which I won't mention, um, the other week, and the head of casting was in the room. And she said, oh, my God. She pulled out her notebook. These are the five films I'm casting, and I am immediately going to change the description for all the day players so that when we cast the day players, they could be male or female, just like that, in one meeting. Now, how many years is it going to take? If it takes a year to produce a movie, if it takes two years to produce an animated film, um, it is one, you know, one movie, one video you know, at a time. Um, but if we have a lot of those going on, uh, then it starts to you know, permeate. I have a question in your back. Hi. I had a question regarding um, MTV programming. Uh, and... Um, I think it's, it's Rebecca, right? Yeah. Um, if you've had any work or done any work researching MTV programming, particularly two shows, uh, 16, 16 and Pregnant, and then um, it's called Teen Mom now. They've kind of updated the stories of these young girls. I mean, they do focus on women and um, the consequences of having unprotected sex. Um, so just to find out if that is a program that actually is proving to be preventative and um, teaching young girls the serious consequences of unprotected sex. So I'm wondering if you read Larry Debro or if he's actually you. Do you guys know who this is? Um, <laughs> disguised. Uh, so he wrote uh, a column for Ad Age today about those programs um, and saying, you know, people who are criticizing MTV are missing the point because MTV is, in fact, one of the few networks that's also trying to mix in with all of the bad stuff that they portray, some important messages about um, sexual health for kids. And they've been doing that for a long time, in part working with Kaiser Family Foundation. It's really hard to study the effects of one particular program. And so, like, the time that we got to look at that episode of Friends, that's one of the few places in the research literature that's ever been done. Because... You guys all know, even when Friends got seen by 17 million teens, finding those 17 million is difficult because you have to make you know, five times that many phone calls before you find those kids. It's expensive, and research doesn't get funded at that level to do that. So there's almost nothing known about individual programs and how they influence kids. And I think what you have to do is try to extra extrapolate and say shows that portray sex having consequences or, and particularly negative consequences, should be making a difference with kids. As long as the kids are involved and interested, they're learning, oh, you know what, things didn't work out that well for this, you know, this mom who had the baby and gave it up or, you know, some of the different things that have happened to the teen moms. Um, and I, so I think it's a good example of the kind of programming that could make a difference. And if there were more portrayals like that kind of scattered in among the rest of it, that could help make uh, the same kind of difference, that incremental change that we were just talking about. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question. Hi, I wanted to ask about your myth-busting survey. And I heard something in a different medium of... Um, 
you know, live orchestras, more women are making it to first violin because they're only being listened to. They're not being watched when they see the candidates. So the panels only have the audio, and gender is so much of a visual medium. So I'd like to ask what are the purpose of the, um, what would you like to achieve with the myth busting survey that you do? Because, like, this woman asked about how do you write for female action characters? Well, you ask male writers to write for men, and then you cast them female. <laughs> Well, the purpose of the MythBuster research is to dispel this notion that boys won't watch girl characters. So, um, so because we do not, would never touch anyone's IP. We would never touch any content creator's intellectual property to do our own research. So we believe by creating content on our own and essentially telling a story three ways one that's gender balanced, one that's skewed towards boys, one that's skewed towards girls, and test it and be able to make adjustments with the content so that, because what, uh, you know, 2 to 5 is going to watch and 6 to 11, there's going to be a shift, you know, in the programming. And test it for likability. Marketability is, is if we all could, um, could have perfect results for marketability, none of us would be working. So, I mean, that's the hardest thing for a studio. And so we would want to prove, you know, the likability that if a piece is gender balanced and the characters are interesting, that the kids don't care. They're not going to care about the gender. And no one's really going to do that because when they're developing a property, it may be based on a book or it may be based on something. They're not going to go to the expense to say, well, let's spend our money and do this story three ways before we make the movie. It's, it's, the industry doesn't work that way. So we believe that, that would be interesting if we could do that. And if you'd love to give us money towards that, let me know. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank everyone for their wonderful questions tonight and also to our panelists. Um, and I'd like to be a little bit selfish and take the host's prerogative and ask you both one last question, if you don't mind. Um, Madeline, you said early on in your presentation that uh, programming targeted towards preschool age children does a pretty good job of the representation of gender that you'd like to see. Why do you think that is, and are there lessons to be learned of what they're doing right and the choices they're making? Well, um, any of our pediatricians or Becky would know that when children are that young, they don't see gender. They're not really enculturated yet. They don't care. Is it interesting? Is it a starfish? Is it a mushroom? Is it a girl? Is it a boy? Is it doing something interesting? Um, for any of you who have very young children, I'm sure you all question why Yo Gabba Gabba is just phenomenally you know, successful. But it just has to be engaging. And again, it's at that point is, well, when do the messages start to get enculturated where boys say, oh, well, that's a girl's thing. I can't wa I'm not allowed to watch it. Or they become closet viewers, um, <laughs> which we, we do know. Fascinating. Um, and I, I'd like to ask Becky, um, you, in response to a question about whether or not you've studied video games, uh, you mentioned sort of the reality of, of this kind of research, which is, well, if the federal government would get interested in this and invest some dollars, we can look at that. Um, if we assume that, you know, for the sake of argument, everyone in this room joined the RAND policy circle tonight, <laughs> and you had some funding to do a study on something that you think is really critical and really important, there just aren't the resources right now. What would you do? What would you look at? I think video games are a possibility, but probably it would be social media and either social networking or 
um, YouTube, which is a version of social networking, because right now what we have is the possibility for kids to play every role in the media world. They can create the content, they make their own videos, they can distribute it to their friends who then redistribute it to somebody else, and then somebody watches it, and then they can play the role that the parents were playing with watching TV and comment on the video that they see. And all of this stuff is all available online. And we really don't know what the consequences of that are for kids. But we think it's probably that the media is going to have a much bigger impact because now it's their friend made it or your friend of your friend. And kids who share values and beliefs will perpetuate and reinforce one another. So if you're a kid who gets off on the wrong track online, there's a good chance to find a lot of other kids who are also on the wrong track who will support you. Um, and so that's the study I'd really want to do next. Becky and Madeline, thank you so much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.